0: Well, Mary Kay just read for us a passage. It's one of three psalms that are found in the first two chapters of the book of Luke. Uh, Jesus later says of John the Baptist, the child who was born in this passage, says of him that he was the greatest of the prophets. That is, he ends really the Old Testament era. The Old Testament goes into the New Testament and the Gospels are the story of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant And these three psalms ought to be included in the psalms that we sing and read together, the 150 psalms. The first one is given, uh, is by the Song of Mary that Paul looked at last week. My soul magnifies the Lord. It's often called the Magnificat. And if you grew up in the Episcopal Church or the Lutheran Church, it's sung in evening prayer or said, uh, chanted in evening prayer every week. Uh, The second one is this one we looked at. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's called the Benedictus, which is the first word in Latin, the word blessed. And uh, it also is sung every week in morning prayer. And the third one is the one that's um, in chapter 2, where uh, Simeon sings a song in the temple, this old man who holds the infant child in his arms. And it's called the nunc dimittis, which means now depart. And it's the first... Words in Latin, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And that also is sung in evening prayer every week. So, you know, these are our famous. Psalms that have been used in various ways, though those of us who are not in very liturgical churches don't understand much about them. But the fact is that the Christian faith has contributed a lot of words to the English language. They are words that are found in the Bible, and people use them today, but oftentimes they don't understand their meaning, and they might be the, uh, the reason for some ridicule to be given. There are words like saved and redeemed, reconciled, Words like atonement and righteousness people use these terms. they have some vague notion of what they mean, but they might make fun of them and i 've shared before that I have this very vivid memory from childhood. It was cocktail hour, and my grandparents were there and uh, cocktail hours from was was from about six to eight every evening in my home growing up, and I remember that i wasn 't getting much attention, probably which Not a lot of attention was given to the children at that time. So I stood on a chair in the middle of the kitchen, and it's like a photograph in my mind. I'm standing on this chair, and I'm preaching to people and saying, Brother, are you saved? (laughs) And, you know, for the life of me, I can't figure how I ever would have heard those words by the age of five. I never went to a church where that was talked about. That kind of thing wasn't said in my family. I may have seen it on television, but I somehow knew that it would get a laugh. And the fact is, people often do that, maybe in more subtle ways or more adult ways than I portrayed. They, they use terms that we find very meaningful. Now, one of the ways that we can avoid having words be ridiculed is to uh, give different terms to them so that they kind of surprise people. We talk about Jesus being the Lord, And that's because the New Testament's filled with that idea. But sometimes it's helpful to refer to Jesus as my leader or something like that because it doesn't evoke the same kind of response in people who have heard the word many times but don't really know what it means. But a lot of times we can't do that. Leader isn't really the same as Lord. It's not a perfect substitute. And oftentimes it's just necessary for us to kind of explain what the words mean And why they're meaningful to us. And I'd like to do that this morning with the word redeem or redemption. That's what this song is about. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. And the rest of the psalm lays out what does it mean for God to visit and redeem his people. This is a word the Bible uses over and over again. And it communicates for those of us. Who understand it a very sober and serious truth that is rich in meaning that that we rejoice in Uh, this is the psalm that Zechariah spoke at the birth of his son as Mary Kay read to us his son who is called John and would eventually be known as John the Baptist he's not called John the Baptist you know because he's Uh, meant to be distinguished from James the Catholic or something like that in the Bible. It's not a denominational name. It's that he was known as the person who baptized people for the remission of their sins or for confession of their sins in preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. So he's a very famous person. Now, it says in verse verse 67 that at the end of this event where the child is named, Zechariah's tongue is loosed, and he he, uh, is now able to speak after months in which he couldn't speak, from the time when the angel revealed to him that in his and his wife's old age they would have a child who would be the forerunner for the Messiah. At the very moment when he names the child, a name that was not known in their family, and no one was prepared for it, the name John, that he was told to name the child. It says, verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And so what is follows here is a psalm, but it, is, uh, it contains words of prophecy. Now, Many people think that that means that this must have been something that all of a sudden, with his tongue being loosed, he spontaneously was able to compose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing in Scripture that says that's not possible at all, but that's not required at all by the words he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. In fact, it's much more likely that during the months between when he had revealed to him the birth of this child and the actual birth of the child to his wife— past childbearing age that he had a lot of time to reflect on this and think about it and and then to uh, compose what we have here. You know, I, I remember baptizing someone once and I had helped this man to very carefully prepare what he was going to say. I said, you don't have to read it, but it's helpful to to write it down, and I had met with him two or three times and helped him write it out, and he had written something that would be so helpful to people, and when he got in the baptistry, I remember he threw the paper aside and he said, I just want to speak from the heart. Well, I, I don't know why reading wasn't speaking from the heart, but apparently he thought it wasn't, and the problem was, I don't think people understood a word he said after that. <laughs> you know? It would have been a lot better if he'd uh, taken what he'd thought through and said it uh, all that simply to say there's no... There's no big divide between the work of the Holy Spirit and a person's life. And they're preparing in some way to say something. The prophets of the Old Testament evidence great preparation in the things that they wrote down. So, at any rate, he prophesied, and what follows is this psalm that contains words of prophecy, and it ought to be classed with the psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, that prophesy the coming of the Messiah. Now, I want you to note in Mary's song that Paul looked at last week, she starts small and grows big. The small is, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She speaks of herself. And then as the psalm goes on, she grows to speak of the worldwide redemption that God is going to bring. He has helped his servant Israel, is the end of that song. And in Zechariah's song, he does the exact opposite. He begins broad. He speaks of redemption as the work of God in people's lives. And then when he comes to the end, he begins to speak of the individuals who are going to bring that redemption. So the psalm breaks into two parts. Verses 68 through 75 are the broader sense of this is what it means for God to visit and redeem his people. And beginning in verse 75, he speaks specifically to John, who will become known as John the Baptist. Verse 76, and he says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now, what he does in this psalm is he describes the nature of redemption. As in many places in the Bible, the first sentence gives you a clue as to what the content is going to be about. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Well, what does it mean for God to visit and redeem his people? Let's think about that. There are four things that the the passage speaks about. It it, uh, says that it speaks of forgiveness, and it speaks of direction, and um, it speaks of service of God, and it speaks of holiness. Those are the four things that are contained in the full sense of what redemption means. So the first thing he says is that redemption means the forgiveness of sins. We'll start in the second half where he begins to speak specifically to John and about Jesus Verse 76, for you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, The salvation of people is contained, if you can speak of one thing that draws it all together, in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, forgiveness is not the only aspect of redemption in the Bible, as we'll see. But it is the central, most basic one that everyone must experience on some level. Now, I learned this at the very outset of my Christian life. Um, When I was a freshman in college at Michigan State, my wife, who went to the University of Michigan, uh, she wasn't my wife, she was my girlfriend at that time, she came to faith in Christ, and she shortly after that, in the fall of our freshman year, shared with me the gospel. And she didn't know how to do it. She was very unclear herself, but she had this little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws that she used. And she sat down, we sat there, and she began to go through this with me. And I remember the first of The Four Spiritual Laws was, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And we got through that one. And the second one is, uh, in in the way it was written in 1972 probably uses inclusive language now, but it said, man is a sinner and separated from God and therefore cannot enjoy God's love or plan for his life. And I stopped right at that point, and I said, I am not a sinner. And, uh, you know, so I, I mean, you can stop there. You don't need to go any further. And that's as far as the conversation went that day. Now, that, that's an incredibly self-righteous thing to say, isn't it? Let me try to explain, and it won't help my Uh, reputation very much by trying to explain, because it was self-righteous, but the fact is, from my limited spiritual background, where I did go to church, some, not real often, but maybe once or twice a month, and I went to a church where I never would have heard some really basic concepts about the Christian life. From my spiritual background, I thought of sin as big Acts that harm other people and God is really angry about, like the second half of the Ten Commandments, which I couldn't have named, but I I knew they contained things like adultery and murder and stealing and lying. I knew those were wrong, but I wasn't that kind of person, generally speaking, and so I figured I wasn't a sinner. That's what I meant. I, I meant there are people, most of them are in jail, who need this kind of thing. You could read to them this sentence, man is a sinner and separate from God, and that would be meaningful to them. But for me, it doesn't really, that's not really what I'm like. And what happened over the next several months, I look back and realize is that God brought me face to face with the fact that there were all kinds of things in my life that I wasn't dealing with. If I just wanted to look on the surface, yeah, I'd never done those things. But if I started to look a little bit beneath the surface, I would find that there were, all kinds of things I wasn't able to control, many impulses and desires and expressions of anger and hurtful things that I said. And as I read the Bible and I attended Bible studies and began to (laughs) learn things, I realized that Jesus was very clear that sin is not merely outward. Now, it is outward, and all of those things that I thought were sin were in fact sin, but it's far deeper than that, that God sees the motives of a person's heart and the impulses and that anger is the very basis on which murder occurs and that lust is the very basis it's the impulse inside on which immorality occurs and i could never say that i was free of those kinds of things and that that i experienced over several months though i wouldn't have really understood at that time in these terms that was what the bible calls repentance Rep- Repentance uh, is a part of faith in the sense that uh, Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. That trusting in Christ involves a, a change of mind and a turning from a former way of thinking and a former way of living. In my case, I had this perception that I was a pretty good fellow and how could God be upset with me? That's really what I thought. I figured that, you know, I haven't done anything really wrong But as time went on, I began to think about, well, lies that I had told my parents in my youth that, in fact, hurt my parents deeply. I remember reflecting on that and realizing that this was something I had already done that I couldn't change, and that I had inside of me the same kind of impulses still, and that Well, repentance, what it is, is it's a change of mind, a change of perception about who God is, what He says, first of all. Then it's a change of desire that rather than just wanting to live that way, a desire to live differently, and ultimately it's a change of direction. What happened for me was that went on over several months as I read the Bible and I started to understand more. I was sitting in a meeting in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, and a person was explaining the gospel from up front in a totally different way than I've ever heard before or since. and uh, somehow it clicked. It's like, oh, it's not that Jesus died for me and if I believe that and I try to do my best, I'll get to heaven. It's that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for all of my sins. That I needed the forgiveness of sins, something I had denied uh, eight months before or so. I saw that my most basic need before God was forgiveness. Without a word to anyone else at that point, while I was sitting alone there listening to the man, I know that I trusted that Christ was sufficient to pay for all of my sins. Now, 1 John, in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1 says, the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. All sin. Not just the outward and evident sin that all of us are aware of, The blood of Christ cleanses us from the inward and hidden sin of which we may not even be aware and the hidden guilt that flows from sin that no one else may see. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. The problem with self-righteous people is that they focus on the outward and try to ignore the inward. But when you stop ignoring the inward, you realize that inside you're a mess. And there's only one way to be forgiven. And that's through the blood of Christ. Now, forgiveness uh, involves a release of guilt. I certainly experienced that. Uh, Patty testified to that this morning very clearly, a release of guilt. And, and, And that's very important. It's based on the gospel, but it's also something that while God gives it to us at a point in time, we often only slowly experience it as we move through life we have to continually be applying that idea to ourselves that's why it says the blood of christ cleanses from all sin as we go through life and we become more aware of it that's the first thing god does when he visits and redeems a person he imparts the forgiveness of sins Now, the the second is he gives direction in life. That's what he goes on to say, beginning in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And just as the Bible pictures sin as darkness and a person living under the domination of sin as wandering in the darkness... In the same way, redemption is pictured as the dawning of light. In fact, Jesus is called here the sunrise from on high. And you think if you've ever watched the sunrise, some people haven't. I know that. When Devin came on staff, I had to teach him one day that there's a a 6 o'clock in the morning. He wasn't aware of that, you know. (laughs) Just having graduated from college, and we had to have an early morning meeting, and he said, there's a 6 o'clock in the morning? You know, I didn't know. Anyways. Um. (laughs) If you ever watch a sunrise, you know how it is. Everything is darkness, and there's this very slow, almost imperceptible, but growing sense of light that enlightens the world. And all of a sudden, you can see things that you couldn't see before. And that's God's account of life and what Jesus does in a person's life. He's like the sunrise that brings light. So, God's account of what we are like apart from Him is that we are locked up in ignorance and we're thinking that we're wise. It's that we're living under a veil, but we think that we have all that life is, and we're going to grab for all the gusto we can as we go through life. Yet, in fact, God says we're living on the very edge of death. We have life, but we're in the the beginning experience of what death will be because we're separated from him. But we think we're doing just fine. We're threatened with rejection. We're in the dark as regards God and his true character, and we lack righteousness but we think we're upright. That's how God describes human life. And what we need is this direction that the light of God would give to us. Now, this differs for every person. What does it mean when a person finds in Christ a new sense of direction? It doesn't mean everything changes in life. Um, Once we didn't know God, and now we know God, and we experience forgiveness... But the Bible says that that change is primarily vertical, and it's only over time that that redemption takes on a horizontal aspect. It begins to change our relationship to other things in my life. God owns us as his child, we're told. And in that, we find that in this sense of forgiveness and security, we have a new light that is shed on the horizontal aspects of life. So, If when I come to faith in Christ, I'm a husband and a father, becoming a Christian doesn't change my condition in life. I'm still a husband and father. What it does is it it sheds a new light on it so that my role and its significance becomes more evident to me as I come to know God as my father. When I come to faith in Christ, whatever job I have and whatever gifts and abilities I have my inclinations, my likes and dislikes, my basic temperament, that doesn't change. That doesn't change as a result of forgiveness of sins and new life. What changes is my relationship with God vertically enhances my understanding of what I am by nature so that I seek to live it out on a horizontal plane in how I relate to people differently than I would have before. Grace doesn't replace what we are by nature it doesn't automatically change a person who doesn't like beets into a person who wants to eat beets every day and that's true of all of life what grace does is it enhances what we are by nature and builds on it That's the second thing. Redemption brings forgiveness, and redemption brings new direction in life, that each of us have to figure out what that means, how our relationship with God impacts the way we relate to other people around us. And another thing it gives is a life of service. This is in the first half of the psalm. Look in verse 73, the last few words, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Now, I have a custom of closing services by saying, go in grace and serve the Lord without fear. Has anyone ever heard me say that before? Okay. I was a little afraid to say it because I was afraid someone might wake up and start stumbling out of the service because they figured, uh, you know, I was done because I said that. I am not a very liturgical person, but I have found that if I don't close with those words, I can say anything. I can say you're dismissed, and people just sit there and look at me like... You know, the magic words haven't been spoken yet. The old man's not done. Now, the basic meaning of the word redeem is to release. It's used of the redemption of the Israelites from Egypt. They are released from bondage or slavery in Egypt. And that basic idea flows throughout how it's used in scripture. God's redemption in Christ today is a release as well. It's a release from sin and guilt first of all, and it's a release from the power of sin that dominates us in this life as we learn to walk with God. It will be a release eventually from the very presence of sin when we're in his presence in the end. But it's not only a release from the bondage of sin. It's a release to God, and the Bible makes this clear. Some people have this idea that when a person is forgiven, it means everything's wiped out, and now you can do whatever you want. And that's not... The idea the Bible carries. Romans chapter 6 says, Just as you once, at one time, presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. In the same chapter later, it says, now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, and that's the idea of scripture, God redeems us, he purchases us back, releases us from the bondage of sin that we might live for him in service to him. So we're released to serve God. And the passage says explicitly, we're released to serve God without fear. Now, what is it we would fear? Well, I think there's two things that people fear when they think about relationship with God sometimes we fear something related to God we fear that he's going to ask us to do something that we really don't want to do you know a person's afraid I'm going to have to be a missionary in Africa if I become a Christian well when we think about it and we read the Bible more we realize that God asks us to do the things that we long to do So if he wants you to be a missionary in Africa, I can guarantee you are going to desire to be a missionary in Africa more than anything you can think of. I mean, generally speaking, God doesn't tell people to do things that they have no equipment, character, preparation, desire to do. What God seeks to do in our lives is to help us begin to do those things we really want to do. And I find this is true of service when people stop being afraid that God is going to somehow ask them to do something they don't want to do. I just love in ministry helping people start to do something they've never done before and finding out they really enjoy it. I've really seen this with Buddy Break. It's not the only thing. I've seen it with people teaching Sunday school, leading small groups, all kinds of things. But Buddy Break, my wife's brother was severely mentally impaired. And I remember meeting him when I was 15, and I was terrified of this person because I'd never been around someone who was, you know, severely incapacitated in some ways. And and that's something that subsided over time, and I eventually became his guardian. The thing is that when people want to come to buddy break, they may have that feeling. In fact, I assume many people do if they've never had contact with people who experience a serious handicap. And so, you know, we, we say things to them like, you can help to serve food you can set up you can clean up there's different things you can do you know checking people in that don't require that you be that person on the front lines and i've seen a number of people begin to do that i just want to stay in the background i don't want to have anything to do with this you know too deeply and next thing you know they're a buddy i show up on a saturday and they're with an actual person and they're the helper who's assigned to that person for the entire time that they're here helping them what god wants to do is he, he wants us to find service as being satisfying and meaningful and that means we have to step outside our comfort zone and when we begin to do that we find out there's all kinds of things i would like to do that i would enjoy doing and i need to find out which things god wants me to do so you know th- that's one reason people hold back they fear god and what god might do or make them do in their perception but we also fear other people don't we uh, we don't want to be known as the, one of those dreadful religious people who is always accosting people and making them feel uncomfortable that you can read about on the Internet. And no one should want to be like that. But what happens is we're so afraid of other people that there are many, many times in which we don't even do those small things that demonstrate our concern and our love for them. And we don't do the the legitimate, non-offensive, caring things that we could do because we're concerned that they might think we're religious. And we need to be delivered from fear so that we can serve with a sense of freedom. And that's what, hopefully... Involvement with other people, whether it's in worship like this and listening to the word of God or whether it's in small groups or one-on-one, involvement with other people helps us to grow and desire those things that God wants us to desire. And lastly, redemption, we are told, brings a holy life. Again, the end of verse 73, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies... Might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now again, some people think that God just wants to forgive their sins, and that's all there is to salvation. That's that's it. It's a wonderful thing. And it is a wonderful thing, but in the Bible it's the foundation, it's the starting point. That's why. The Bible uses the words born again to describe the experience of conversion to Christ and trusting in Christ alone because it's like a baby being born who has all these new capabilities and capacities imparted to him or her by the Holy Spirit. And forgiveness of sins is foundational, but it's not all that God is seeking to do. And redemption, when you fill out a picture of what it means, when God visits and redeems a person is so much bigger than that. Some people think of life kind of like a fruit tree, and they have things in their lives when they come to faith in Christ that they want to get rid of. I know I experienced that. For some, it's um, excessive drinking. For others, it might be immorality or swearing or dirty jokes or whatever it is. There are certain things, and you can think of those on the fruit of the, as the fruit on the tree. And, and you go and you pluck the fruit off of the tree, in this case, it's rotten fruit, and, and people often experience at the outset of their Christian experience the realization that some of those things they don't want anymore, and they shed those things, or they might find it more difficult, but they receive some assistance and prayer and help, and they move away from whatever those things were, and here's the problem with that. That's just changing the outside, and it's important, but you can take off the fruit of a tree. That's really easy. Jesus used that illustration, and he said you don't get apples from a fig tree. He he says that rotten fruit comes from a rotten tree. You have to cleanse the inside of the tree, and that's, that's what is more important. It's more important that you realize redemption goes deeper than just changing a few outward things like plucking the rotten apples off a tree. Redemption goes to the very heart and it deals with the motives and it takes a lifetime and even then it won't be over until God rips out of us, roots and all, sin and brings us into his presence. So if you're a young person particularly maybe and you maybe there are some things that you experienced or desire to experience God to remove out of your life and you have others pray for you and with you and that's a good thing and I encourage you to do that but don't think of yourself as a person who used to do these things and now doesn't do them any longer that's not what characterizes you your friends may think of you that way they might think Sally was such a fun party girl But she's not fun anymore. She doesn't like to go to the bars and that kind of thing. They may think of you that way, like the change is just that once you engaged in some behavior, another time uh, later you don't. But don't think of yourself that way. You have to think of yourself in terms not just of some outward behaviors, but the kind of person you are in relationship to others. See yourself and portray yourself to others, uh, not simply as a person who's, stays away from certain behaviors and is known for not doing that, but as someone who uh, sees yourself in terms of relationships and activities and the way you love for and care other pe- for other people. Well, that's Zechariah's characterization of redemption when he draws it out in full. When God visits and redeems his people, he provides forgiveness, direction, service, and holiness. But let me know one important thing about that. I wouldn't want anyone to leave here thinking, what that means is I need to decide to take a new direction in life. Or um, I'm gonna start to serve God. How can I do that here? Or it's not simply a person saying, I, I haven't lived very well, I'm just I'm gonna live an upright life from now on and so they begin to take off the fruit on the outside of the tree. People can do that very easily. That's not redemption. That's just trying to change yourself. God visiting and redeeming his people is God doing something deeply inside of you, and it has to start with forgiveness. It has to start with the most basic experience of turning away from those things you think about God and turning to God and asking him, what do you really like? What do you want me to know about yourself? It means you have to come to God and admit your sin and your need for Christ and for forgiveness because that changes the inside, and it's only the pure and rich sap of a tree that produces fruit that is pure. In the same way, God has to start on the inside We experience that when we come to trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Again, our gracious Father, we thank you that you are a God who shows us what you want to do in our lives. Thank you that you give to us the fellowship of your people to do that and you bind us together in that. And We pray that you would do that by your grace inside of us. If there is anyone here who has never come to trust in Christ and in Christ alone, please, by your grace, enable them to do that. I mean, trust that to you in Jesus' name.